0: Welcome along to 20 Minute Topic, I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined as usual by veteran campaigner and blogger Greg Lance Watkins We're going to do something slightly different this week in that uh, Greg and I are both very strong Brexiteers but him being quite a bit older than me we came into our journey as Eurosceptics in very different ways For Greg, it goes back to the very early days of the EEC project, as it was then known in the 1960s. For me, it was at school in the mid to late 1990s. Greg, uh, as we've said on previous podcasts, you are, I'm afraid, more than twice my age. And you can remember the EU project in its infancy, the European coal and steel community. Let's go back to the 1960s. When did you become opposed to this project?
1: I was... Born in 46, and by the time I was about 13, which would have made it sort of 62-ish, I was absolutely convinced that the worst possible action Britain could take would be to join the European Economic Community, or Common Market, as it was then called. Um, The only thing that was common about it was it was as common as muck and run by unelected officials. Um, And my father, having been um, in his latter years in the services uh, in military intelligence, um, having been a fighter pilot right the way through the war uh, on Spitfires, um, and then had something of a cutting-edge role um, during the Cold War in Germany, I had, by the time I was 15, um, been, let me think... I'd been to uh, France, Spain, Monaco, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Germany, Holland, um, Italy, Sardinia uh, and Gibraltar uh, uh, oh, and Portugal. I'd seen just how different each of these areas were and how different in attitude. Uh, my parents had been stationed in uh, the Air Force in Um, Germany, uh, so that was my home for a couple of years. Um, And having travelled way beyond um, the continent, um, I had some experience of other countries to measure it against. Uh, Having started travelling at the tender age of 11 months, when we went to India, I actively took positions in things like debates at school, uh, speaking in opposition to the concept of Britain becoming a member of this nascent uh, empire uh, that a largely socialist stroke Marxist um, group of mostly uh, civil servants and student leaders were trying to put together uh, let's not forget that I've I've got documentary evidence of Britain's involvement with what was to become the uh, Iron and Steel Federation um, white papers uh, from 1948 onwards.
0: So, are you saying, therefore, then, that 1948 onwards, even at that time, and that would have been the Attlee government? Are you saying that there were those in Britain, even at that stage, who were preparing for Britain to join it?
1: Absolutely no doubt. Hmm. Um, who, who specifically are you talking about in relation to that? Uh, to be honest, I haven't looked at the documents for, uh, for ages. Hmm. Um, I could look them up, but it was generally the civil service that were involved in producing white papers on the event. I am aware that Winston Churchill, who was very much active at that stage in politics, was very opposed to Britain being a member, uh, but spoke in glowing terms of turning uh, Europe into um, a common market.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that, because in the run-up to the 2016 EU referendum, and also people like James O'Brien in the uh, few years since have quoted Winston Churchill, but not put it into context. Churchill did believe in a united political Europe, but he was very much of the view that Britain should not be a part of it. So I'm glad you clarified that point.
1: He is firmly on record as saying if it is a choice between being swallowed into uh, Europe uh, or the open sea, Britain must take the open sea.
0: That's absolutely
1: correct. So...
0: Your instincts then, having travelled, were always against this project from the outset, or at least Britain being a part of this project. At what points in your mindset do you go from logical cooperation, like when there are differences... Um, to sit round the table and discuss it is far more preferable than going to war for obvious reasons, and there are areas of mutual interest where it makes sense to cooperate with other countries. At what point do you think a line is crossed and it becomes something less desirable, namely political union? What are the red lines as far as you're concerned?
1: Uh, When countries are forced to surrender uh, their national independence, their national choice, their national electorate, uh, to a central mega behemoth mm. that has no interest in the individual and much interest in virtue-signalling its failure, left, right, and centre, as the EU has for many years, um, by claiming as their great success their growth. Yes, they have grown. They formed the German and French alliance, um, which is hardly surprising, since uh, France had been quite closely allied to Germany during the war, uh, with the Vichy government and individuals like Mitterrand, who worked, as you may recall, to later date with Klaus Barbie, deporting French Jews to Germany for uh, what was euphemistically called re-education and. France, of course, the origin of the word comes from the word Franks and the Franks were one of the uh, Germanic tribes. So in that they saw it as um, sensible to all but amalgamate and also it is a very good way of um, exchanging German industrial income for French in agricultural income
0: well yeah that that was at the heart of the coal and steel community you had a sort of Germany which was coal and steel France which was wine and cheese and agriculture and so forth but it became clear didn't it from pretty much the outset that France effectively had a token independence and this was a German dominated project Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my journey now and how I was campaigning against the EU and Britain's withdrawal from the EU when I was still at school and my instinct was to be against it um, I, I could tell there was something wrong but I think a, a big formation in my mindset came and it with these would either have been 1996 or early 1997 when James Goldsmith's referendum party, the late James Goldsmith, sent a booklet to, I think, every house in the country. And one of these arrived at our house. And it was about 18 pages long. And it gave a short history of the European Union. And it sort of formed in my mind what I kind of already knew, but I had it in black and white, the beginnings of the project, the loss of sovereignty, how Edward Heath knew, that even in the, ni- in the early 1970s, he said there would be no loss of sovereignty. He knew all along what it was about. And then around about the same time, um, a VHS video was sent, not to every house in the country, but to many houses from the referendum party. My grandfather's house was sent one, and he gave his copy to me. It's now easily available on YouTube, this video. And it was the former uh, That's Life presenter, Gavin Campbell, Um, talking for about 10-15 minutes about the EU project, and then Goldsmith himself spoke towards the end of the video. And that was what formed my mindset, and I saw in the run-up to the 1997 election how um, New Labour was going to sign us up for the social chapter, how John Major's Conservative government had signed us up to Maastricht, and how this project of ever-closer union was not only dangerous, but... It really was going to get ever closer in the years that followed. And sure enough, that followed in the Blair era with the treaties of Nice and Amsterdam and then Lisbon and so forth. But what, the other side to the coin is um, I became interested in the work of Tony Benn. And I was fortunate enough to hear Tony Benn speak in public twice. And even in his 80s, he was a charismatic, a, a captivating speaker. I am not an ideological soulmate of Tony Benn, but on issues of democracy and sovereignty and so forth. He's very he was very very good indeed. Um and I think that he said there are five questions you should always ask when people have power over you. Uh number 1, what power do you have? 2, how did you obtain that power? 3, in whose interest do you use that power? 4, to whom are you accountable? And 5, how can I get rid of you? And you ask those questions of the European Union, um particularly the European Commission. What power do you have? Quite a lot. How did you obtain that power? I was appointed rather than elected. In whose interest do you use that power? Um, Well, not in that of the people. To whom are you accountable? Well, I'm not really. How can I get rid of you? I can't. And I think the other thing we should remember, and as I learnt more and more about the history of the project, there's a lot of effort made nowadays to portray Eurosceptics as right wing, whatever that means. But I think credit has to be given to the left in Britain because they were ahead of the game in this in many ways. Now, the greatest ever Eurosceptic speech in this country was given by the former Labour leader Hugh Gateskill, who died as he was Labour opposition leader. He understood in the 1950s what this project was all about and was vehemently opposed to it. But Gateskill came from the tradition of um, the old school patriotic socialists, um, something that sadly seems to have been lost, certainly from mainstream politics in this country. But Even in 1983, for example, Michael Foote's Labour Manifesto, widely derided, was committed to withdrawing the UK from what was then still the EEC. So the left in this country was ahead of the game in many respects, and that, I think, is something that should be remembered.
1: Um, Interestingly, you mentioned the video. I must have given away at least a dozen boxes full, uh, distributing them through my shop in Chepstow. Um, and somewhere I still have about half a box full Mm. Um, and I've got a a copy that I can find probably within five minutes Mm. Um, and when it comes to the Hugh Gateskill speech which was superlative um, by any standard of political speech, I have that linked off of my Brexit Views and News website and it's on a par, in my opinion, with Enoch Powell's speech of February 1970, as I recall, or 71, uh, which can be found in Hansard, um, which outlines the dangers of the European Union and uh, basically why Britain should never join it. I think that one of the telling things is that in all my years of interest in travel, foreign countries, foreign people, and having been to well over 50 countries, lived in many of them, worked in quite a few of them, I have always felt the nation-state is the most successful concept, as long as that particular state isn't some tiny enclave um, I think areas like Monaco uh, which of course is, isn't is uh, a real nation state, it's just a permitted zone within France and Luxembourg with its 600,000 population um, or for that matter Wales or uh, Scotland or Northern Ireland trying to be nation states is just Rather fatuous. Um, it's bad for them and bad for the people they keep on trying to kick the ankles of.
0: Yeah, that that's one for another podcast. We can easily do twenty minutes on that some other time. But I'm glad yeah, you
1: mentioned. But Marcus, but Marcus, yeah. but Marcus I, I make that point because in all the years I've been interested, I have never, ever had even a senior senior politicians, and I have spoken with commissioners of the European Union, I've spoken with MPs, I've spoken with cabinet ministers, and I've spoken with numerous captains of industry, and I have never heard a single one of them give a plausible, sound reason for membership of the European Union for Britain that isn't based on their own personal very selfish interest
0: Well that's right because I think back to the um, the 2016 referendum and um, Alan Sugar appeared on a number of television programs and the interviewers never asked him the real important questions because he was talking a lot about trade, trade, trade uh, goods crossing borders and so forth No interviewer, and he did several interviews, ever said to him about the, the fundamental questions of democracy and accountability which is at the heart of all this um, So trade is obviously trade is important, but it's certainly not everything. And you can have good trading arrangements, as indeed Norway does with the European Union through EFTA, without being part of this political project. But I'm glad you mentioned Enoch Powell a moment ago, because you were out of the country at the time of the 1975 referendum. But there we saw um, the no campaign, as it was at the time, because it was a yes, no question in that particular referendum rather than leave or remain. John Mills, who is still very much about and still um, a Labour Leave man, he effectively headed the um, the No campaign. And it was um, a broad coalition, mainly of people of the left, Tony Benn and Michael Foote, but also Enoch Powell, who by then was not a member of the Conservative Party. And um, John Mills um, has told stories, and I've seen documentaries and read books on just how skewed the um, 1975 uh, referendum campaign was because every single national newspaper, with the exception of the morning star, supported um staying in the e e c um, The government permitted um a, a leaflet or a booklet to go out from each side, paid for out of the designated campaign money, and then there was one for yes, one for no, and then there was a second one for yes um which was permitted because that was the official opinion of the government. So the 1975 referendum, there were all sorts of other things that happened around about that period. Uh, for example, Jack De Manio's removal from the Today programme was a very, very odd thing, which is worth exploring in more depth. Do your own research on that one, folks. That was a story in itself. Jack De Manio was a Eurosceptic, was mysteriously removed from the, the Radio 4 Today programme. Um, you weren't in the country in 1975, but that was not a fair battle, was it?
1: I'm... Um- very aware of how unfair it was, having read a huge amount on that particular battle, and something that very few people are are aware of was that there was a breakfast meeting at the Connaught Hotel every morning, which involved government ministers and the media, and civil servants provided the letters for the letters page for the day. Mm. And almost every newspaper went along with it, just as nowadays um, you can trust the BBC as far as you can kick them when it comes to Brexit. Uh, And who'd want to get their shoes that dirty? Um, They are bought and paid for by government. But in the case of today with the BBC, um, a very large sector of that is free studios, subsidised travel, a very cushy lifestyle and huge soft loans given out of our taxes by the EU for them to favour the EU's propaganda. Just as you may recall Russian presidents being quoted as only inviting people to their press conferences who had had their copy vetted and approved Prior to the press conference, absolutely obscene the way it's being treated.
0: Finally then, for those who are sitting on the shelf now in 2019 still not sure whether to support or be against the EU project, can you succinctly in, say, 30 seconds give them clear reasons why they should be opposed to it?
1: I think I could do it for 30 hours with ease. For 30 seconds, I would say, do you want to choose your own Way of life, a government, values, and borders, or do you want to be a vassal in a vassal state that has very little say, with higher and higher contributions to the overweaning, overburdening democracy stroke, dictator committee system of the European Union?
0: And I think something we can add to that is a fundamental principle, and it's this. For as long as we are in the European Union, whatever you want, you cannot have, whether you're a capitalist or a socialist or a liberal or anything else. The Houses of Parliament in this country act within the parameters permitted by EU law, and it's only once you are free from EU law that those we elect to Parliament can truly make decisions about our lives. And again, that goes back to Tony Benn's fundamental belief in democracy, using the example of the five questions I gave earlier on. My thanks as always to Greg, and my thanks to you for listening. Join us again next week. See you then.